Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Hi, I'm Lee Strobel. I'm again with you here at Venture Online. Thank you to Tim Lundy and the team for inviting me back. If you were here last week, you know that I talked about the story of my journey from atheism to faith and the evidence for a miracle, that is the resurrection of Jesus, that convinced me that Jesus really is a unique son of God. He proved it by returning from the dead. But today I wanna talk about kind of a related issue, and that's this. Is God still in the miracle business today? And if he is, how can we know for sure? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna begin by telling you two true stories. And after each story, I'm gonna ask you a question. Here's the question. Is this story an example of just an amazing coincidence? Or could it be a miracle of God? Okay, here's the first story, true story. This happened in an African village, a remote village, not far from the equator several years ago. Uh, far from pharmacies, far from hospitals, far from medical clinics. A woman died giving birth. Uh, she left behind a two-year-old little girl and this prematurely born little boy. And they were trying to keep that premature child alive, but it was difficult because, uh, as I said, there's no incubators, there's no uh, pharmacies, there's no electricity, there are very few supplies. And so a helper filled up a hot water bottle so that they could keep the prematurely born little boy alive on the cold nights, because even though it's on the equator, it gets cold at night. And they knew this baby was not gonna survive the cold night if it didn't have a hot water bottle to keep him warm. And so this helper filled up the hot water bottle, but it burst. And it was the last hot water bottle in the village. And the child would not survive the cold night without it. Well, there was a missionary doctor in that village. She was from Northern Ireland. Her name is Dr. Helen Rose Veer. And she gathered around all the orphans and said, let's pray, let's pray for this little boy who's just been born. And so this one little girl, 10 years old, her name is Ruth. She seemed to go a little too far in her prayer because this is what she prayed. She said, please God, send us a water bottle. She said, it'll be no good tomorrow, God, because the baby's gonna be dead. So please send it this afternoon. And as if that weren't audacious enough, she added and she said, well, while you're at it, God, would you also please send a dolly for the little girl so that she'll know that you really love her? Well, the missionary doctor is thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm really on the spot here. Can I really say amen? I mean, she said later, I, I just could not believe that God could do this. Oh, of course, I know God can do anything. We all learn that in, in the Bible and in Sunday school. We know he can do anything, but come on. There's limit, isn't there, to what God can do? I mean, the only hope of getting a new water bottle would be from a parcel sent from home. And the entire four years that she had been a missionary doctor in that village, not one parcel had ever arrived from home. Besides, who's gonna think to send a hot water bottle to a village on the equator? People don't tend to think how cold it gets at nights. Well, a couple hours later, a Jeep 
pulled up and dropped off a 22-pound package. And the orphans pounced on it and they ripped it open and they found some clothing for them. They found some bandages for the leprosy patients. They found a bit of food and, wait a minute, what's this? The missionary said later, as I put my hand in again, I felt, could it really be? She said, I grasped it and I pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. And she burst into tears. She said later, I had not asked God to send it. I did not truly believe that he could. And with that, little Ruth rushed forward and said, well, if God sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. And sure enough, she reaches in and the bottom of the package, there was a beautifully dressed little doll. And Ruth said to the missionary doctor, can I go over with you, mummy, and give this dolly to the little girl so that she'll know that Jesus really loves her. Friends, that parcel was packed five months earlier by the missionary doctor's former Sunday school class in Northern Ireland. And the leaders felt prompted by God to include a hot water bottle. And a little girl contributed the doll. And this package, the only one ever to arrive in those four years, that same package was just delivered the very same day that little Ruth had prayed for it with the faith of a 10-year-old child. So let me ask you a question. Is that a coincidence? Or could it be a miracle of God? Second true story involves a brilliant African-American student from the inner city of Detroit, Michigan. He earned a full scholarship to Yale University to become a physician. But at the end of his first semester, he was failing chemistry class. And chemistry is a prerequisite. If you're going to be a doctor, you got you to pass chemistry. And so everything depended on the final exam. His whole grade was going to come from this final exam. And so the student prayed. He was a Christian, and he prayed fervently for God's help. He said, Lord, medicine is the only thing I ever really wanted to do. Would you please tell me, what is it you want me to do? And so what he planned to do is he planned to study all night and cram to try to pass and do well on this final exam. But you know what? Sleep overtook him. He fell asleep, and all seemed lost until he had a dream. And in that dream, he was in the auditorium of his classroom, and a nebulous figure was writing chemistry problems and their solutions on the blackboard. And sure enough, when he went the next day to take his exam, he looked and he was shocked. The first question on the exam was one of those that this nebulous figure had written on the blackboard with the solution. And same with the second question, and same with the third question, and so on. And so it ended up that this student ended up getting a good grade in chemistry. And he promised God, he said, God, you'll never have to do that for me again. And he became an extraordinary physician. By the age of 33, he was the youngest director of pediatric brain surgery, pediatric neurosurgery uh, in the United States. He was a uh, pioneering physician at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Maybe you've heard of his name before. It's Ben Carson. 
He later became one of the top 10 most admired men in America. He ran for president. He's a member of the president's cabinet at this point. So here's my question for you. Is that an example of a coincidence? Or could that have been a miracle of God? Well, as I explained last week, you know, I was an atheist for most of my life uh, until I examined for two years the evidence for a miracle, that is the resurrection of Jesus, that convinced me that he is the son of God. Um, but you know what? My skeptical nature didn't go away when I became a Christian. Yes, I believe God did miracles in the past. I mean, the, the Gospels are soberly written. And, and most of the time in the Gospels, even his opponents didn't dispute the fact that Jesus did miracles. They just got mad at him for uh, doing them on the Sabbath. Uh, so I think there's good historical evidence for some of these miracles. But I wondered, is God still in the miracle business today? Is God still divinely interacting with people and intervening in people's lives in the 21st century. So I decided to take my journalism training, take my legal training, and investigate this issue. And I ended up spending two years on this project, which resulted in my book, The Case for Miracles. I traveled the country, I interviewed scholars and experts on different sides of the issue. In fact, the first three chapters of my book, I interviewed the most famous skeptic in America, uh, Dr. Michael Shermer, editor and founder of Skeptic Magazine. And I said, give me all your arguments against miracles. And then in the rest of the book, I respond to those arguments and give the affirmative case that miracles are still going on. And these are my three conclusions from that investigation. Number one, God still is in the miracle business today. Number two, miracles happen a lot more frequently than we think. And number three, some miracles are far better documented than skeptics suppose. So let me get started. Let's, let's look at the four big questions about miracles. The first one is this. How should we define a miracle? What is a miracle? You know, we throw around that term all the time. You know, people say, oh, I was downtown. I found a parking place. It was a miracle. Um, well, I don't want to dismiss that. Maybe it was a miracle. Um, but generally, God works through the laws of nature that he himself created. And, and some things we say are miracles. They really are just big coincidences. A lot of people have offered definitions of miracles. I think the best one comes from a philosopher by the name of Dr. Richard Pertill. It's a five-point definition, and this is what it is. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. So in other words, when I see something absolutely extraordinary that has spiritual overtones, that's not explainable by natural um, explanations, that is validated by independent sources that are trustworthy, that is when the miracle bell sort of goes off for me. In other words, just having a dream about a nebulous figure writing chemistry problems on a blackboard is not in itself miraculous. But if those problems that this nebulous figure is writing on the blackboard and the solutions happen to show up the next day on an independently prepared examination, that kind of does have the ring 
of something miraculous taking place, especially when it takes place in the context of prayer. Second question, aren't miracles impossible because they violate the laws of nature? A lot of people think so. The famous Scottish philosopher, uh, uh, David Hume, that's what he thought. You can't have a miracle because it violates the laws of nature, therefore miracles are impossible. Um, but I think that's just a misunderstanding of what miracles are. Uh, I've got in my pocket some chapstick. And if I were to drop this chapstick, the law of gravity tells me it's gonna hit the floor. But if I drop this chapstick and somebody were to reach in and grab it and catch it before it hits the floor, they're not overturning the law of gravity. They're not violating the law of gravity. They're merely intervening. And that's what God does in a miracle. He's not overturning the law of gravity. He's not overturning uh, uh, or, or violating it. He's merely intervening. And we can be confident that God did create the laws of nature, and therefore, of course, he can intervene in them. Uh, how can we be confident of that? Well, as philosopher William Lane Craig has pointed out, everything that begins to exist has a cause behind it. Number two, virtually every scientist on the planet now believes, based on the evidence, that the universe and time itself had a beginning at some point in the past. Well, if whatever begins to exist has a cause, if the universe began to exist, then the universe must have a cause behind it. Now think about it. What kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? Well, he must be uncaused because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. He must be transcendent because he is separate from his creation. He must be powerful given the immensity of the creation event. He must be smart given the complexity and the fine tuning of the creation event. He must be immaterial or spirit because he existed before the material world even came into being. He must be timeless or eternal because he existed before time, physical time came into being. He must be personal because he had to make the decision to create. And the scientific principles of Occam's razor would tell us there would be just one creator. One other thing too, he would be caring or loving because he so carefully crafted an environment where people make it in his image can flourish. So what have we got? Transcendent, powerful, smart, spirit, eternal, personal, creative, caring, unique. That is a per pretty good beginning point of a description of the God of the Bible. In fact, in my book, uh, The Case for Miracles, I, I spent two chapters interviewing uh, a scholar who has a PhD in physics from UCLA, who's now a professor of physics at a major secular university. And he goes through the evidence from physics um, um, uh, for the, not only the beginning of the universe, but the fine tuning of the, of the universe that points toward a transcendent creator that matches the description of the God of the Bible. So I'm convinced personally that Genesis 1 verse 1 is accurate when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he is the creator, then of course he can intervene in his own creation. 
You know, walking on water, a baby born of a virgin? <clears throat> Come on, that's like child's play for the creator of the universe. So, let's move on to question number three. How common are miracles today? Do they happen a lot? Well, as part of my research, I hired a highly respected public opinion polling firm to do a scientifically accurate poll of American adults. And I asked this question. Do you have at least one incident in your life that you can only explain as being a miracle of God? And guess what I found out? 38% of Americans say, yes, I've had at least one experience like that in my life. That's, you know, two out of five Americans say they have one experience at least that they can only attribute as a miracle of God. Now think of that. Let's, let's say that most of them are wrong. Let's say 99% think it was a miracle, but it was just an amazing coincidence. So let's just rule out, just, you know, rule out 99% of them. Guess what? Even if we did that, we'd still have nearly a million miracles having taken place just in the United States. So could it be that miracles happen more often than we think? We just need to open our eyes a little wider to the reality. Now, let me mention this before I go on. I don't think, based on my research, that miracles are necessarily evenly distributed around planet Earth. Miracles often happen in clusters, generally in clusters around the world where the gospel of Jesus is just breaking in for the first time. And that makes a lot of sense because often these are cultures that are not very sophisticated. And, and so people are looking toward the miraculous. They may have a, um, um, some sort of background in some tribal kind of religion that uh, accepts the supernatural. So this points people toward God. Um, uh, so it, it makes a certain amount of sense. In fact, one scholar told me that up to 90% of the growth of the church in China can be attributed to people who themselves or they know someone who's had a miracle in their life. So often we see in these remote places, this is where clusters of miracles take place. That'll be relevant to what we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. Question number four. Okay, based on all that, how can we know that a miracle is really genuine? Because there have been frauds, haven't there? Of course, there have been things exposed as being supposed healings that turn out to be fraudulent. We know that. We also know that there's a placebo effect, which is when people think they're going to get better, sometimes they do feel better. And the placebo effect can explain how some people all of a sudden appear to have been healed. We have instances where um, um, the original diagnosis was wrong. Maybe someone misread an x-ray. And so that's why it appears to be healed in the later x-ray. He didn't have the broken bone in the first place, or he didn't have cancer in the first place. Um, so there could be a lot of reasons. There's some illnesses that have uh, spontaneous remission. All of a sudden, it just goes away. Now, often they come back fairly quickly. Um, it's not often permanent, but sometimes you have a spontaneous remission. Friends, all of that is true, but it does not explain all of the examples of miracles 
that I encountered in my investigation. There are other miracles that simply cannot be explained by any naturalistic means. So how can we tell if something miraculous has occurred? Well, here's a phenomenon I've noticed. Uh, often skeptics will ratchet up, they'll cross their arms and they'll ratchet up their skepticism to an unreasonably high level when it comes to miracles. I'll give you an example. One atheist uh, wrote an article for Skeptic Magazine. She said, what would it require for me to think that a miracle had taken place? She said, well, what if a chicken learned how to read and then beat a grandmaster at chess? If that happened, then maybe, 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 I start to think something's going on. Friends, I think that's setting the bar a little ridiculously high. Here's my view. I think we can reasonably conclude that a miracle has occurred if we have solid documentation, if we have multiple and credible eyewitnesses who have no motive to deceive, if there is no naturalistic explanation for what took place, and if it takes place in a spiritual context, such as in the context of prayer. So, let me give you uh, an example of something I think will blow your mind. And if that doesn't, I got some other ones for you. There was a, and there is, a woman with a PhD from Harvard. She's a professor at Indiana University, a major secular university. And she heard reports of miracles taking place in a cluster in Mozambique. So she said, hey, I'm a researcher. I'm going to go investigate this claim of miracles taking place. So you know what she did? She led a team of researchers who went to these remote villages in Mozambique. And they said, bring us all your deaf and bring us all your blind. So people would get all the people who are deaf, all the people who are blind, or people who have severe hearing or loss or vision loss. And this team of researchers would, first thing, they would test them scientifically. What is their level of hearing? What is their level of vision? So they would get that baseline established. Then immediately they were prayed for in the name of Jesus by a, some people who tend to have a track record of God using them in these kind of cases. Immediately after that, they were scientifically tested again. Is there any difference in their hearing? Is there any difference in their vision? And guess what they found? In virtually every case, there was improvement, in some cases, astoundingly so. In fact, the average in, uh, improvement in visual acuity was more than tenfold. And then you have uh, someone like Martine. Martine lived in uh, a village there, uh, in Mozambique, when they first encountered her and tested her, she could not hear the equivalent of a jackhammer next to her. But after prayer in the name of Jesus Christ and hands laid upon her, she was then tested scientifically immediately after that. And guess what? She can now hear normal conversations. 
So this team of researchers was so blown away, they said, we need to see if we can replicate this study. So they went to another area in the world where the uh, miracles are taking place as the gospel is breaking in, and that's in Brazil. They did the same test. Guess what? They got the same results. Now listen, this is a scientifically valid study that was accepted for publication in a scientific, peer-reviewed, secular medical journal. Uh, and I went to Indiana and I interviewed the PhD from Harvard who conducted this study. Her name is Dr. Candy Gunther Brown. And I asked her for her opinion on what this shows. Here's what she told me. This is a quote. She said, our study shows that something is going on. She said, this is more than just wishful thinking. It's not fakery. It's not fraud. It's not some televangelist trying to get widows to send in their money. She said, it's not some highly charged atmosphere that plays on people's emotions. She said, something is going on. And I think she's right. I think it's something supernatural. So my, my book talks about some of these other scientific tests that have been done and case studies. Uh, my favorite one involves a woman by the name of Barbara Snyder. Uh, I interviewed Barbara Snyder at length, went to her home in Virginia for that. Uh, there are medical records from her from Mayo Clinic going back many, many years. Uh, we have multiple credible eyewitnesses to what happened to her who have no motive to deceive. Um, in fact, two of her physicians were so astounded by what happened to Barbara that they've written about it in books. So let me tell you a bit about Barbara's story. Barbara was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the Mayo Clinic. And she went downhill very quickly. Uh, she went through several years of deterioration. Uh, she was hospitalized repeatedly. She had multiple surgeries. And finally, the doctors met and they said, um, next time she gets pneumonia, which she did on a regular basis, um, we're just gonna let her die because it's only prolonging the inevitable. So they put her in hospice. Uh, at her home, waiting to die. One of her physicians, Dr. Harold P. Adolph, a board-certified surgeon who had performed 25,000 operations in his career, he called Barbara, quote, one of the most hopelessly ill patients I had ever seen. So here she is. She's in hospice. She's waiting to die. She's at home. One lung is non-functional. The other is just a 50%. She had a tube inserted into her throat so she could breathe. The tube was connected to oxygen canisters in her garage. She'd lost control of her urination and bowels. She was legally blind. All she could see were gray shapes. Uh, um, she hadn't walked in seven years, and so her legs had atrophied. Her hands were permanently curled around to where her fingers were touching her wrist and her feet were permanently extended and locked in that position. And she was waiting for her inevitable death. Well, some friends called WMBI, which is the Christian radio station of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, Barbara lived in the suburb of Chicago and said, would you please ask your listeners to pray for Barbara? She's on her deathbed. Just pray for her. 
So we documented that at least 450 Christians began praying for Barbara. How do we know? Because they wrote letters to Barbara saying, I'm praying for you. Well, it was Pentecost Sunday. And Barbara invited to her house two friends from church. They were all Christians, Barbara and her family and, and uh, these friends. And they came in to read her some of these letters of encouragement that these people praying for Barbara had written. And so they're reading these letters and Barbara says, all of a sudden, I heard a booming voice come from the corner of the room. Nobody was there. And the booming voice said, get up my child and walk. And so Barbara, I mean, this is absurd that she could get up and walk, uh, but she heard this voice. And so um, the, the girls knew when she was agitated uh, to take the tube out of her throat so she could speak. And so they did. And so Barbara said, I don't know what you guys are going to think of this. God just told me to get up and walk. Go get my parents. I want them to be here. So they run off to, ran off to get her parents. But Barbara didn't wait. Barbara jumped out of bed. And she told me, she said, Lee, I jumped out of bed and my feet hit the floor and I looked down and the first thing I noticed were my feet were flat on the floor. She said, my feet hadn't been that way for years. They'd been fully extended and locked in that position and rigid from the multiple sclerosis. But now I was standing like a normal person. And then she said, I looked and I realized my hands had become uncurled. And she said, they hadn't uncurled in so long. But then she said, the third thing she noticed was, I can see. She said, Lee, you'd think that'd be the first thing I would have noticed. But it was my feet and it was my hands. But her mother came running into the room and fell to her knees and grabbed Barbara's calves. And she said, Barbara, your muscles have come back. Your muscle tone has come back. God had restored her legs had atrophied from seven years of not being able to walk. And, and her muscle tone had come back. And her father came in and took her, took Barbara in his arms and they waltzed around the house. Well, it was Sunday evening and, and she went to a church. It wasn't a Pentecostal church, charismatic church. There's a Wesleyan church right there in Wheaton, Illinois. And so Barbara goes to the church and she's walking in and, and it just happened to be when the pastor got up and said, does anybody have any announcements? And with that, Barbara goes walking down the center aisle and the entire church freaked out because all they knew for years was Barbara in a wheelchair, Barbara in the hospital, Barbara dying. And here she was fully healed walking down the aisle and they just spontaneously began singing, amazing grace, I once was blind and now I see. The next day, Barbara went to another one of her physicians, Dr. Thomas Marshall, an internist for 30 years. And he said later, he said, when I saw Barbara walking down the corridor toward my office, my first thought was, oh, she died and this must be a ghost. Because she said, he said, this is medically impossible. Friends, God instantly and completely and totally and astoundingly healed Barbara in one miraculous moment. There is no natural explanation for this. In fact, even if you could find some sort of crazy natural explanation, what about this voice that she heard that gave her the seemingly absurd instructions to get up and to walk? Today, Barbara has been totally healed for more than 30 years 
years. And guess what she did? When she grew up, got a little older, she married a pastor. And today they pastor a little Wesleyan church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Her doctor, Dr. Marshall, wrote this. I have never witnessed anything like this before or since, and I considered it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God performing a true miracle. What do you do with that? What, what, do, you, what do you do with something like that? I think that just defies the explanation that it could have been merely a coincidence. I think it was something supernatural. I think it was a miracle. On top of that, just recently, there have been two new case studies. This has happened since my book has come out. Two new case studies, again, published in peer-reviewed medical journals. Uh, one of them involves a woman who was blind for a dozen years from juvenile macular degeneration. This is an incurable condition. She went to a school for the blind. She walked with a white cane to give her mobility. She read Braille. And uh, she was blind for over a dozen years. She married a Baptist pastor. And one day they were praying before bed. And they were very emotional and they were, they were crying as they prayed. And her husband prayed this. He, he had his hand on her shoulder as she was in bed. And he said, oh God, you can restore eyesight tonight. I know you can do it. I pray that you will do it tonight. And this woman opened her eyes and she saw her husband kneeling in front of her. And this is what she said. She told the researchers, I was blind when my husband prayed for me. And then just like this, in a moment, after years of darkness, I could see perfectly. It was miraculous. She said, within seconds, my life had drastically changed. I could see. I could see. And this was not some temporary phenomenon. It's now been 47 years that her eyesight has been restored. Again, an incurable condition, instantly healed um, after a prayer to Jesus for her healing, published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. What do you do with a case study like that? That just came out a few weeks ago. And then a couple of months before that, another peer-reviewed medical journal published another case study because more research is being done on apparent miracles. This case study involved a man born with a condition called gastroparesis. And this meant that he had to have a tube inserted into his stomach, a feeding tube for the first 16 years of his life. Can you imagine? Since being a child, since being a baby, up until being 16 years old, he had a feeding tube inserted. He was taken to a church right there in California. People laid hands on him and prayed for his recovery in the name of Jesus Christ. And he said later, he said, I, I felt like there was an electric shock that went through my body when those prayers uh, took place. He said it was like a... Um, 
uh, a pulsating electrical shock, and he was spontaneously healed of this, again, incurable condition. And it's now been seven years. Feeding tube has been gone now for seven years. He's totally healed. What do you do with that? What do you do with a case study like that, again, accepted for publication in a peer-reviewed medical journal, a valid case study that researchers have brought to light? Friends, here's the point. God is still in the miracle business today. He really is. Now, you may ask the obvious question, okay, well, why aren't all of our prayers for healing answered? And that's a great question. I spend a lot of time in my book responding to that question. We don't have the time tonight to go into it, but guess what? Tim Lundy and I are going to do Q&A. And that's going to be, I know, the first question he's going to ask me. What about people that pray for healing and it doesn't take place? I think there are good ways to respond to that and, and good reasons for why that phenomenon takes place. But look at, look at this evidence. Look at these, um, these studies, these case studies and scientific studies that have been done. Doesn't it tell you God is still in the miracle business today? To me, it, it tells me three things. First, it tells me that God is real. He's real. And that these kind of miracles often point people's eyes heavenward toward the God who does what science tells us cannot be done. Second, these miracles show that God is powerful, that there is nothing he can't pull off. And then third, these miracles show that God is loving. I, I think of Barbara Snyder. What did it say to Barbara Snyder that God chose to heal her? By the way, I asked her, why you and why not others? She said, I don't know. I can tell you something about Barbara Snyder I found out. When she was curled up like a pretzel, dying of multiple sclerosis, you know what she did? She had a ministry. She said, my mind still works fine. I can still pray for other people. And so her ministry, curled up like a pretzel waiting to die, was to pray for other people. Uh, I think that's awesome. And for whatever reason, God chose to spontaneously heal her and through that to point so many people toward him. So I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it points you toward God. You know, last week we talked about the historical evidence for the resurrection. Today we talked about these cases and, and, and scientific data that tends to support miracles having taken place. And uh, I hope if you're on a spiritual journey and you're just checking out Christianity, I hope that, that uh, Venture Christian Church will be a place where you'll continue your journey to ask questions, be, participate in this question and answer time that we can dig deeper into what we've talked about uh, over these two weeks. And uh, if you're a believer, I hope this deepens the root of your faith. God is alive, God is real, God is active. God is there, and you know what this means? We can have hope, and we can trust that he will fulfill all of the promises he's made for us in Scripture, including the promise that when we leave this world, he will open up the heavens for all who follow him. God bless you. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. 
To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.